Doug, do you always just like plan blue days for the meetings or something? <laughs> What's that? Do you always just plan brew days when we're having meetings? You're always brewing. Uh, no, I forgot about the meeting. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if it's Sunday, Thursday, Tuesday. You're always brewing. Always brewing. I have to. Um, I have to get. So it occurred to me, my son's only like he's mid-December. He's going to be here, and and I've decided to do the uh, West Coast uh, Pilsner. Nice. I'm using a uh, Todd's recipe. Which is very, very hoppy. Which my son, my son, my son said he wanted something dry, crisp, and hoppy, like an IPA. But he didn't want an IPA. So I'm like, oh, I have just the thing, and I have no lager still, so I can make this happen. I want an IPA, but I don't want an IPA. <laughs> well, he drinks IPAs all the time. He usually will just go into a place and say whatever IPA. But you know, he told me he wants an IPA that's drier and uh, crisper than usual. Hmm. Seems like a uh, West Coast Pilsner will fit the bill. Yep. I kind of prefer it. It's just kind of super clean and easy and, you know, just got hops. And Christmas. Well, Jordan's the guy to ask about it, too. I've made it like four times. Now. Yeah, he assures me it's a style. <laughs> but to be fair, Frank, well, I was in a... Have... I only have one beer that's fermenting right now, so I am way behind the eight ball. Come on, man. You got to get on it. At, at least you have a beer fermenting. I just transferred all mine. I have an excuse. Oh. I'm, I'm, just, I'm still building my new stand. That is no excuse. <laughs> yeah, especially since it's out, outdoor lagering season here. Maybe I should do a bunch of lagers. Man, it, it's cold here. It gets to like a, like a good 40 in the mornings, and it's 80 by, by 12. Yeah, my, my <laughs> rear stairwell that's in a storm door, it, it stays 50, 48 to 50 right now. Oh, man, you can just log her naturally. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that's what I do in my basement anyway, because it doesn't get above 68 year-round. I don't have a basement. It's just water below me. <laughs> so I've decided I've decided that my Weizenbach is a is is an absolute hit or miss at competitions. There's really no middle ground. It's it's getting like mid you know uh, high 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 20s or best of show. It's well mid 20s <laughs> are an average brewer. So That's right. right? The rating goes to 50. So if you get a 25, you're going to get some, some, of the, some of those out there styles that no one really makes it like it's really hit or miss because judges i feel like don't have that experience well and in this case the one, one judge he yeah. literally um made comments like it's really dark inappropriate to style well if you look yeah. at the style you see that there's a pale version and a very dark version right it, and then and then, well, and, then and, and then he said uh, it's got a it's got a sweetness in the body. It's, it's, it's like it's too sweet. Um, you should increase the bitterness to offset that sweetness. And in the style guidelines, it says low to moderately mo, uh, medium low to low uh, bitterness can come across sweet. Right. <laughs> I, I had a judge. So the I, beer I, for boobs. I found this the other day. Uh, I, I okay. Well, someone's talking. I can't Oh, I'm having trouble with hearing you, Mike. All right, well. It's my family's internet. 
Well, I, I, had a, I had a judge at Beer for Boobs uh, do my triple, and their comments was, were, um, it's too phenolic, and it's too much bitterness, and they, he marked like medium bitterness. You look at the style guidelines, it says medium to high bitterness. Just like, dude, you just, just admit you don't know what a triple is. Let's move on. <laughs> well, I, that, that's where I, that's where I feel, feel like it's laziness, because if they, if they describe it, and they describe it to style, and they say it's not appropriate to style. Right. When th that that to me is, but you know what? It's a learning opportunity for that judge. So their their comments were just like, yeah, that's what the style guideline says. You're saying what the style guideline says, but you gave me a twenty. What, what's going on here? <laughs> it's a failure to read the guidelines. No kidding. I mean, yeah. you're, when you're yeah. judging, you can have the guidelines right in front of yeah. you, I, even right. if you've never had one before. You feel like you can go. Okay, it's medium to high bitterness, and that's what the guideline tells me it should be. So, right. okay, give it a what, you know good points me. for that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what it does at that big beers uh, competition. Big beers in Belgians. I have I have it in uh, Florida Best right now. I'm hoping I I really want to meddle with that beer. By the way, can that's someone really tell good. the people over at Big Beers if uh, and I'm talking to you, Trevor, because uh, you know everyone. Um, let them know that a Hellas is not a big beer because on their list of all the big beers, the first one is a Munich Hellas. Huh. Uh, yeah, that was that was that was a typo. I'm pretty sure. I'm sure it was. I'm sure they meant. Yeah, to say I think Hellas it's Hellas Bach is what they're. Yeah, Hellas Bach. <laughs> that would make sense. So, are we supposed to welcome Jordan or? Yeah, Jordan. Jordan's here, so um, I switched over to my phone because my computer was being uh, pumped because I'm at my parents' house and their internet sucks. So, um, and my laptop apparently is a pain in the butt all the time, anyways. But, um, anyways, uh, so we got a little bit of business to discuss. Um, I'll, I'll lead off with uh, Bruce and uh, so if you want to do, let's see what my camera looks like here. Um, so, if you want to do a beer uh, exchange with Bruce and um, we're coming up kind of on the deadline for that. I'm probably going to send out those emails here in the next, uh, probably next week sometime, um, just so we can get that going so people can get stuff by the December meeting, which we need to announce probably December 2nd, um, unless we change it to a different date. Um, so, cool. Uh, one of the things we got the, uh, I don't know, Haven, do you want to talk about what you did with Basic Brewing Radio uh, this last week? I suppose. <clears throat> Uh, if you guys didn't see or didn't hear, um, I had the opportunity to chat with James from Basic Brewing Radio, uh, which was really awesome. I was kind of scared shitless to get on that meeting, but uh, James was really cool to talk to. Um, and we had a good chat about the brew club and the history of this club and what we do here. Um, kind of talked us up and all the cool shit that we do for an online club. And then we did the uh, the Mash Your Luck template, which is uh, kind of James and... Um, that other guy what's his name i forget the other guy's name um but they kind of come Please. up with it just to brew yeah thanks well um kind of to brew out a beer that's not to a style uh which i know some of you have been talking about in the discord to, to try to do a little bit more uh we figured it didn't really fit with the average brew series but this is the perfect opportunity to get into something and brew something that's not to a specific style uh so if you haven't seen that it's posted all over the socials go check it out uh and we're kind of going to go similar to what we do with average brew is we're gonna uh give it a couple months brew this beer uh whatever you come up with with those very very 
loose guidelines. Um, and then we are going to send a few beers to James and Spencer to taste on Basic Brewing Radio. So we'll get another episode of, of them talking about us and then tasting the beer. Uh, so I think it'll be super cool. Um, so definitely let me know if you have any questions or anything like that. If you want some ideas, we were tossing a few around in the Discord last night. Um, so I think we have a lot, of, a lot more options than I thought we did with that template. So I, I think it's going to be cool to see what people come up with. You said a couple months for that? I I think we're going to wait to to ship to James until after the holidays. So I would think like a, a mid to late January ship date. So we have we have a few months to brew it. Okay. I got a lot I got a lot in my my queue right now. I know, same here. <laughs> same. Good job by the way. What else you got like that's like brewing real estate haven. It's pretty cool. What was that? Sorry. He's like brewing royalty. Really good job. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was nice. Um, the first template, if you guys listened to it, the first template we built was for a medium ABV amber German ale, and I'm like, well, yeah. we just did one of those. So yeah. I decided to to try to. I, I wanted. I wanted America. I wanted U.S. That that was my goal. Um, but I when when I got U.K., I'm like, oh shoot, we already did bitter too, but. Uh, a few of you enlightened me that Scottish and Irish ales can be considered UK, I guess. So we we got a lot of options if we wanted to to go that route for our mash your luck. So I really don't know what I'm gonna do yet, but it'll be fun. I'm thinking amber hazy. Oh, <laughs> With British hops. No. <laughs> amber hazy. No, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be British hops, right? It's just just the yeast was the. Suppose that's you're probably you. open to interpret what UK means, think. but right. I know there was a, a buddy who brewed a uh, kind of a red hazy for a local, you know, went on tap at a local place. Doing they do small batches, but it, it looked like mud in the glass, and it was yeah, it sounds nasty. it tasted okay, but it, it just <laughs> not appealing. No, it sounds gross. Maybe maybe a fuggle hazy would be good then for one that looks like mud. There you go. For, the, for those, those meet your expectations, you won't be disappointed. <laughs> Anything to talk <laughs> about average brew haven? Oh, Anything yeah, average guess, haven? yeah, the porter guidelines are out. If you guys haven't seen that, I sent yeast. Was that last week? Probably Friday or Saturday it got on the truck and was going. So uh, you should see that. If you haven't already, you should see that soon. Um, so let me know. If you ordered yeast and didn't get any, uh, I won't be able to do anything about it, but at least I'll know that you didn't get it. So um, Ben Gansmer is the only one who hasn't had a Satchet sent out yet because I oversold by one. <laughs> so I did get it today. I got an extra one and I'm going to send it your way tomorrow. So we should be all set with that, but that's why Ben doesn't have his. <laughs> so so that's why Right Brew was out of it. Yes, I had. A, I bought their last couple just because uh, I just placed a big right brew order, and I had originally had it's the uh, BRY, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I had that in my cart originally, and then checked again today. Uh, we're out of it. So I I actually talked to Neil a couple weeks ago. He said they ordered four boxes, sold out in the same day, and ordered more. And Lalaman was on back order. So when they got six boxes in, they sold out in two days. So they just can't keep that stuff in stock. Wow. So good for them. That's right, Brew. They, they go through a lot of yeast, then I guess. Well, for the price, I would imagine, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's why they have their pre-order program. 
and they don't have it for dry yeast, unfortunately, which sucks. Uh, but maybe they should. And, uh, and they're like thirty-four seventies, like half price second. of most places. Oh yeah, everything is. Trevor, t-shirts. Anything about design competitions? T-shirts. I have a few test ones that I've done, like I said last month. There is a design, I suppose you can call it a contest. There's a design survey. If you want to contribute, that would be much welcomed. You'd be the first to contribute. No one sent in any design so far. So I was to have a big swag uh, giveaway to those that do submit designs if they get one or in the in the store as an official thing or not. Um, have your chance and put something in. Uh, I hope to have mm, at minimum three different designs in the store for the end of the year. Um, and we'll do a vote out to the learned brewers probably on top designs to prioritize putting up into the store. Um, and anything goes if that's you want like a lab coat, design a lab coat. Um, the supplier that we've chosen, uh, Printful, has various swag-like items to, you know, thongs, to, you know, sneaks, to hats, whatever you want. Um, feel free to design something up, send it into the survey message, message. on Discord, or there's a, a pinned in the announcement thread, there's a, uh, Google form that goes through more details of how to contribute to that. Um, there's minimum like dots per inch for t-shirt designs and things like that. If you want more information, you can always ping me on Discord. Um, I'm not Trevor on Facebook, I'm Ender. So if you want to message me there, you can. Um, or I'm always Trevor at the blue, at the brew club, uh, com for email if you want to do that. Yeah, make sure you submit a design so that uh, Haven and I don't submit three. So, <laughs> I'll also drop the link uh, to the survey. Yeah. In my I'm going to get my stick figure holding a beer thong any day now. It'll be great. Um, cool. Uh, so, any other business from anyone else that needs to be brought up right now? Uh, and otherwise, we'll introduce who's going to talk to us. They have ample time to 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 learn it as something. I think we're good. Take I your, think that's good. Take your sounds of that American. So uh, I have a contributor from Brewlosophy here. He might have won the Oregon State Home Brewer of the Year. He might have long hair. Uh, he might just be a pretty smart guy and an okay dude. Um, welcome, Jordan, folks. I don't know what he's going to talk about because we didn't really discuss about it that much. But I'm assuming if you ask some questions, he'll probably answer them. Hey, thanks, Will. How's the audio and the video coming in? Sounds great. Good to go. Good. Um, well, hey, everybody. Uh, good to be with you here today. Um, this is my first time participating in an online homebrew club, uh, other than when my local homebrew club went uh, online uh, for the, the COVID winners. We actually were meeting outside. Um, and social distancing in the nice weather. I live in Portland, Oregon, and so nice weather is uh, a premium in the summer. Um, and we've actually switched to doing that um, as a year-round non-post-COVID activity. So we're actually still meeting outside in the summer. It's been really nice. Um, but anyways, yeah, so it's good to be with you all. Uh, I figured maybe I'd give you a little bit of background um, 
and kind of brewing history and philosophy. And then uh, I don't have anything canned, but I have plenty I can ramble about. So I figured we could do Q and A. And if that's uh, if no one's biting, then I'll just um, ramble until you kick me off. But yeah, so uh, home brewer of over 10 years, um, live in Portland, Oregon. Um, main styles are IPA, uh, which has increasingly become West Coast, uh, but was really into hazies back in the day. Um, uh, sour beers, um, mainly mixed fermentation, blended stuff, and um, lagers of the German and Czech persuasion. Uh, I got really into competing um, a few years ago and last year tried uh, really hard to win some medals. Here in Oregon, um, like some other states have, we have a, a kind of state championship ranking for the most award awarded homebrewer of the year. Um, and I think I talked about that on a prior podcast episode. Um, but yeah, I, I went really hard and I was able to score two golds at the NHC finals last year. Uh, and along with enough other Oregon medals to ultimately be crowned the champion. Um, I should have brought my belt up uh, from the basement, but I'm up in the living room. But yeah, we actually got like a WWF style, uh, got a wrestling belt for winning. Um, and so now that I'm, you know, that's behind me, I've really kind of take, pumped the brakes on competing and just trying to make great beer and contributing to brewlosophy. So um, I'm about a year now as a contributor. Um, and kind of the backstory there is I've been listening and reading since pretty much the beginning. And uh, when Cade announced that he was moving to Corvallis to do the fermentation science program, I reached out and uh, said, hey, why don't you come to an experiment at my homebrew club? And so uh, he came out and I uh, uh, he did an experiment with us. And uh, afterwards, I was talking with him and I said, you know, I'm actually a research scientist for my day job. Uh, so I really enjoyed the brew lab and I really enjoyed brewlosophy for kind of uh, meeting my professional interests and my hobby interests uh, together. And um, he, it, a few weeks later, he invited me to come on the Brew Lab as a, uh, a guest to talk about kind of statistics and breaking all that down, I think is what it was. Um, and then, then I was asked to come back. Uh, and then as you all probably know, I was um, asked to become a full-blown contributor eventually and uh, co-host the Brew Lab every other episode. So I've been a, a full-time contributor for a year now. Um, and really kind of focusing on uh, testing traditional or kind of esoteric nerdy variables. Like I think my very first experiment I published was post-boil post acidification of an IPA. So I've been kind of follow, listening to all the podcasts and reading all the magazines for years now um, and kind of slowly but surely just picking up little tips and tricks along the way and trying to make the best beer possible. Um, and I think that I diverge from the Brewlosity contributor crew in that I uh, do not like skipping steps. Um, so I'm, you know, pitching high, fermenting cold, my lagers, incentive lagering, et cetera. I did Lodo brewing for a while. Um, and so I've really enjoyed testing uh, my own biases and seeing can um, quicker or easier, cheaper methods actually make the same quality beer. Um, and there's been some that went one way and some went the other. You know, I thought one thing that was interesting was I did a experiment where I compared a ale pitch rate with a lager pitch rate and a cold fermented lager. And although there was attenuation differences after an extending lagering phase, I couldn't really taste a difference in either of the tasters. Um, so I'm still pitching, you know, lager pitch rates at this point, uh, if anything, for speed. 
but uh, there's it has been interesting to be on this journey with you all and kind of see uh, what variables uh, really seem to make a perceptible difference despite the uh, the dogma that I carry. So um, that's I think a little bit about me. Um, I know a fair bit about all sorts of styles. The exception, really, the blind spot being British ales. Don't have a lot of experience. I don't think I've ever used Marisotter once. Um, so don't have too much to say on British beers or cask draft service. Uh, I do have um, a kegerator, a couple kegerators, um, and including a lucre faucet. So I, if, if anyone wants to talk lucre uh, and side pulls, uh, I can go all day. Um, and uh, also a big proponent of bottle conditioning, uh, Belgians and mixed fermentation sours. Uh, and so love uh, huge carbonation and styles when appropriate. Um, and so that's another kind of process thing. So I guess um, now, is there any specific questions that anyone has, um, be it about um, an article that I've published, a, a brew lab or philosophy episode that I was on, or just general styles, process, et cetera, that you want to talk about? Um, can you hear me? Yes. <clears throat> All right. Hey, Jordan, um, this is David from Germany. Um, actually, I was really interested about you talking about the uh, looker tab because uh, I'm very close to the Czech border. And so far, I only have seen them when I was abroad, like in Greece or uh, somewhere else, like also the UK. But I actually never saw them in, in, in the Czech Republic. But I know they are being used over there big time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, for maybe a quick little bit of background on that, uh, for those that aren't super familiar with it, uh, the Luker faucet is spelled L-U-K-R, all caps. I guess that's like an, an acronym or something. Um, and it, it's this really wonky, giant beer tap faucet uh, that um, has a horizontal side pull on it, which is becoming increasingly popular in craft breweries, at least here on the West Coast. Um, and maybe arguably made famous in the U.S. from Bierstadt in Denver. Um, and famously, they pour all of their German lagers uh, with this Lucre uh, side pull faucet. But I have not seen that in Germany. Have you, Dave? No, I don't think so. Um, no, really not. Um, probably some homebrewers do have them. Um, I actually right. know, know a guy who was also like big time into brewing lagers. So he uses them, but I don't have any experience. And I unfortunately didn't try the lager in Greece uh, that checks the lager with a, with a side pull mm -hmm. because, yeah, too many beers on tap. Yeah, and Alex, maybe you can do us a favor and post a link in the chat of like an image of one while I'm um, chatting about don't, this. Don't worry, um, I already did that. <laughs> um, for those that aren't super familiar with it. But why, why I mentioned that, Dave, is it's funny because it's becoming really popular for American service of traditional German lagers, but it's actually not rooted in German tradition. And so uh, it, it's, you know, what you see in nice places in the uh, in the Czech Republic, places that are really focused on that, uh, Pilsner or Quell Brewery has them. Um, and so, uh, you know, you'll get a link in the chat there, you can kind of check it out if you're not familiar with the process, but uh, there's a couple of key differentiating factors and there there we go there's a, uh, a photo in the in the chat one is that you have both flow control like you might have seen on some of those um perlic taps but you also have a ball valve 
um, as well as a filter plate in the faucet. And so when you open it like 90 degrees, like facing towards you, that's full flow through the ball valve that's unrestricted. And so uh, when you open it about 45 degree angle, you are creating pure foam. And so the way you pour a traditional check logger with the Luker faucet is you start, you, you, the, it has this long faucet thing and it actually goes in your glass. And so that's really challenging the American draft uh, standard of cleanliness. And so it's really important to, you always see them wipe them down after they use them. And I'll talk about why they're kind of a pain in the ass um, in a second here, uh, but that's one of the reasons is keeping it clean. Um, and so you put your, um, you know, rinse glass in there and then your, the nose of it is at the bottom um, and you open it 45 degrees and you get a good little few inches of foam and then you open it the rest of the way and then the, the liquid beer fills underneath. And so the Czech uh, proponents of this method argue that it's mitigating oxidation of the beer because the liquid beer is protected by a layer of foam. But uh, whether or not that's true, there is no rep very, it is very difficult to replicate the, the quality and consistency of foam that you can get with this type of faucet. And in fact, in the Czech Republic, uh, Savvy Beer Bars, you can order your level of foam. And so there's three pours, and um, I don't remember um, the, the main one, but it's like a standard pour with like a couple inches. And then there's a schnitt pour, which is about half and half. And then uh, there's this right. kind of rising in fame here in the US, the Milko pour, which is all foam. And I've heard that either a schnitt or the Milko is your like last drink for the night. Um, to cut, you can still want something, but you know, you probably shouldn't be drinking too much more. Um, and so it really exposes, and you can Google this. And in fact, uh, the latest issue of BYO, I think, or maybe the last issue, um, even showed this in the, um, in the magazine, but it's the incredible, the amount of foam you can get. And it's this really, uh, and no, I did not say shit. <laughs> it was schnitt. Uh, and it's this really, uh, tight, tiny bubbles and just this really rocky, incredible head. Um, and so, uh, the, you're inherently knocking out carbonation with this method. Um, and so I like to overcarbonate my beers when pouring them on the Luker faucet, because I like fizzy beer. Um, and I don't know if any of you have ever been to uh, Beerstadt, but they pour all of their lagers using these, but their pills, the slow pour pills, they do the slow pour method. And uh, I'm not sure that there's any real tradition in Europe over this, but they're really um, making it a popular method here. And so what they're doing is effectively pouring foam, letting it reconstitute, pouring foam, letting it reconstitute until finally that uh, 0.3 liter um, flute is filled with liquid, you know, th two thirds, four fifths the way, and then a huge rocky cap of foam. And so uh, what Bierstadt argues is it like um, softens the bitterness and amplifies the aromatics or something like that. It is a really enjoyable beer, but I kind of don't like the lack of carb that that method creates. So I do not pour slow pours at home. Um, I, I like carbonated beer. So that's kind of the, the gist of it. Uh, I haven't really done a lot with IPAs or other styles. Uh, I think it works well for any sort of lager, cream ale, you know, adjacent kind of styles. Um, not that you couldn't do an IPA on it, uh, but maybe one of the reasons I don't is it's really kind of an annoying piece of equipment, as amazing as it is. Um, I actually had to get a new keg rater 
to accommodate it because it goes out so far relative to like a standard uh, draft line. And uh, there's this guy on the internet that, that can help hook you up with one. Um, maybe, it, I think at this point you can actually easily order them. But when I got it, you had to like find a guy that like had a connection in the Czech Republic. And, um, and he was based either out of New York or Massachusetts. There was a guy in each of those places that someone mentioned Notch. Um, the guy that hooked Notch up with theirs was uh, selling them online. And uh, first off, there's a shank, a different size shank. And I, I assume it's a Czech Republic standard. Maybe it's a EU standard. And so there's an American adapter that adds, you know, three or inches or so. But then on top of that, the unit is already really long. And so when I got this, uh, I was, he was like, you're like maybe the first homebrew I've ever sold one of these two. So he was kind of coming from a professional uh, background, but it's a problematic for tap rooms and bars and breweries. And that it will often exceed, uh, exceed the clearance of the drip tray or the bar. And so then you have, you know, beer pouring on the floor or down the side of your um, cabinetry or whatever. And so my uh, former kegerator, uh, that was the case. So I, I, I got a new one from um, More Beer, the, Ke the Comos ones are really popular now. And it's recessed enough back that it's not uh, dripping on my floor. Um, but I say drip, it's kind of prone to dripping. And so um, I will well, well, often disconnect it at night because um, you'll wake up with an ounce or so of beer there. Um, and then you're supposed to, in theory, disassemble it and clean it every day that you use it. And no one wants to do that. So you, there's different pieces that can be disassembled. And so I'll disassemble just the bottom piece where the filter is and clean that out at least. Um, but it's honestly, in some ways, more trouble than it's worth. Uh, and so I often actually don't use it very often just because I'm only pouring one beer a day typically and cleaning it is, is almost more hassle than it's worth, but it is, it is really awesome. And, uh, especially if I could have it like people over and actually get some use out of it for an evening. Um, it's a really cool piece of equipment. So I think Alex has a question about um, replicating a Luger faucet by partially pulling on a regular. You were saying that um, you could oh yeah you, you know the how... foam production by kind of throttling your your pour. Yeah, you know you know how a regular faucet if you just partially pull it you're going to get nothing but foam. Uh, how's that foam comparable to a Luger faucet's foaming? That's an interesting question, which I haven't tried, but that'd be an easy side by side I could do, um, and I uh, so I'll have to I'll have to get back to you on that. Uh, but one key difference is you would not be able to fill from the un from underneath. Um, you'd be mm. pouring on top, uh, and I will say that um, in America, I never they're very popular in Portland. Like everyone's pouring their like breweries are pouring their lagers on them, and I rarely see uh, beer tenders doing it the Czech way they will typically do it kind of the American cleanly way and then pour a layer of foam on top. Um, and uh, the other thing I wanted to mention here, now that I think about it is, you know, the slow pour would lead method would lead one to believe that um, it takes five minutes to order a beer in the Czech Republic. And that is not the case. Uh, there's like a contest, I think every year at Pilsner or Quell who can like fill the best fastest pours. I, the, the record's like crazy, like, a, one beer every two seconds or something like that so it's actually supposed to be a really fast pouring method 
Okay. As Trevor said, uh, I, I suppose you could mitigate the uh, issue of pouring on top of the, the beer by getting something like a growler hose attachment and filling the bottom of the glass with a half pull. That's an interesting idea uh, to kind of like make your own jerry-rigged lucre style at home. You still have the dripping problem and all that, but maybe it's, it's, at least we don't have to spend $300, maybe. I mean, if you oh, have a ceiling, you they're very expensive. That's a good point. Sorry, Trevor, what was that? I said if you have a forward ceiling per like tap, you probably don't have a dripping problem since you would just take that growler attachment off. Right. <laughs> um, I'm curious for people that don't live on the West Coast, are you seeing lucers in the wild frequently? I, I said in chat, I, I saw one, they just installed it this summer up in Brunswick, Maine. So I guess as far north and east as you can get without getting up into the boonies where no one lives. Um, and I, I also commented that the first three people I saw order a beer from that tap all complained that half their glass was foam. Even though it was a bigger glass, they got the same amount of ounce of beer, but they just complained about it. Last time I was in uh, Jacksonville, Jacksonville, Florida, a couple of the breweries were using it. There's mm -hmm. a brewery there called Ardwolf, and they were slow pouring some kind of Czech beer, but it took forever. It is Green Bench in Jacksonville. Yes, yeah, in Tampa or St. Pete. Tampa. I'm sure they. I'm sure they have them. Um, and I heard funny a funny thing actually uh, in the Czech Republic. There's a fourth pour. And it's called a UK pour. And it's a no foam pour from British people complaining that they're getting cheated out of beer. Pretty rich from the people well, who actually, uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead. It's all right. Um, I just wanted to mention that the Schnitt is also very popular in Franconia, where I live right now in Nuremberg and the surroundings, Bamberg. You can get a Schnitt everywhere, basically, but it's usually like, like you mentioned, the last beer that you have. Or, yeah, sometimes, you know, they do like an ex uh, excuse for, for tourists who say like, ah, oh, I just don't want to drink that much beer. But if you're local, then they go, no, gotta have a full pint first, a Seidler, what we refer to. And then can have a schnitt, but yeah. And Dave, uh, do you, is schnitt what the Germans say? Oh yeah, 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 definitely. So I actually learned about the schnitt here in Franconia, and half a year ago, my girlfriend and I went to Pilsen for a homebrew competition as judges. It was really fun. Uh, that was also happening on the Pilsen Urquell side. So. Um, then we ordered. Uh, I had the regular pour, you know, like you would get at every bar and then she had the mleko um the you know just milk the foam beer that was that was really fun to compare those two they were so different in taste like you mentioned the bitterness was way lower and yeah really nice yeah and 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 places that are doing the uh milko pours in theory should be charging less um I've seen some like as low as like a dollar. I've also seen as low, like as high as like $1 less than an actual half liter. So some variation there, but you shouldn't be paying full price for that. Yeah, it's, it's way less beer, definitely. And now I'm jealous of Dave, who's getting Franconian beer all the time. <laughs> but still, uh... I'm drinking right now a West Coast IPA from a 
Greek brewery called Kikao. Yeah. But it is what it is, right? <laughs> so I wonder how that is, because I know last time I was in the uh, the UK, they had uh, like every sort of American beer there. They have just no clue like how many hops we use in America. They were. That's been my experience. My limited European travels um, is their attempts at American beer uh, are not as good as some of the best examples that we have here. Um, you know, uh, what's that one that's in every European city? The chain. Like Brewdog. No, that's a good that's a good example. But they're from um, like a Scandinavian country. Mikeller. They have. Yeah, McKellar. Yeah, yep. I think they do a pretty decent job in American styles. Um, but like rando small craft brewery in Berlin or something, you know, it's pretty hit or miss. It's got to be some of it, like what, what the locals w are willing to buy and what they enjoy. You know, not quite ready one for the Pliny's. Mm -hmm. And one argument I've heard is that they're tasting old exam stale examples from the U.S. that have made it all the way over there. So their target is off in the first place. Um, whether or not that's true, that's I've, I've heard, you know, Gordon Strong and people like that argue that. Kind of related. When you travel outside of the West Coast, is there something that you feel like other places really miss when they try to brew their own example of a West Coast IPA? Oh, that's a great question. So I travel a lot. I got back from Charlotte yesterday. Uh, and I was in Austin the days prior to that. Um, I've been to every state except Michigan. Um, been to almost every major city. I'm, you know, I'm only in Portland eight months a year, maybe total or something. Um, and one thing that I, uh, I will say in general is craft lager is not nearly what it is on the West Coast in the, in general throughout the country. Um, I, granted, I was just in Austin and Charlotte and craft lager representation is better down there than uh, maybe the Northeast. Um, and I'll answer that in a second, Will, about Charlotte recommendations. Um, but yeah, uh, West Coast IPA, I think it's getting better, um, but it is definitely something that uh, there aren't, I don't think that it tends to be like the best thing on the tap list at, um, yeah, those Charlotte, North Carolina. I don't think that West Coast IPA tends to be the best uh, thing on the tap list outside of the West Coast. There's definitely some notable examples. I'm sorry, ex exceptions, I'm sure. But uh, generally speaking, um, it's just not quite as dry and delicious as it is um, in the best examples on the West Coast. Um, I have, you know, you'll see there, there's been this movement to call it West Coast IPA to differentiate it from American IPA, obviously to differentiate that even further from New England or Hazy or whatever IPA. Um, but I was at a, uh, I, in Charlotte the other day, ordered what was supposed to be a West Coast IPA, and it was like amber and hazy and a malt bomb. Uh, so not that every single thing uh, east of, you know, the California border is going to be like that. But um, Alex, I have noticed that uh, West Coast IPA doesn't tend to be quite the same thing um, east of the West Coast, a little maltier, not as dry, um, and 
I don't know if any of you all have ever been in North Park or Highland Park, um, but just not like hitting that like really super crushable lager like almost uh, tropical kind of West Coast IPA that, that they're really doing well in SoCal on. Although I'd say in, in fairness, I mean, West Coast IPA for years was the beers that like Stone and Sierra Nevada and then those big, you know, multi high, you know, 100 IBU beers. And yep. now all of a sudden they're, they're, that's not what West Coast IPA has got redefined. And mm -hmm. so I, I don't know, maybe it should be called like California. IPA. I don't know what, but. You're, you're, you're totally right, Brent. You know, um, the, uh, the new modern West Coast IPA um, is definitely different than the West Coast IPA of yore. And um, I think it's better in my opinion, but it uh, doesn't feel <clears> a little <throat> bad. And uh, I think that the east of like where this is really coming up right now on the West Coast, it's just, you know, they're still maybe a little more old school um, in their approach, not to mention so focused on hazies. Um, that's what the other thing I'll notice when I travel is Hazies aren't really that popular on the West Coast anymore, um, but they seem to be um, really popular everywhere else still. Um, and the other, it's like, I think that hypey beers in general do really well east of the West Coast. So like seeing like slushy, sour, milkshake sour stuff, like um, kettle sours aren't that popular on the West Coast. Um, we're kind of having a, we're like at, coming full circle and like loggers are really, really popular craft logger. But Jordan and hi everybody, my first meeting. Uh, but Jordan, wouldn't you suggest that that regional variation across styles is present everywhere? If you go hang out, and I'm from Canada, but uh, if you go hang out on the uh, east coast of the United States and you get a west coast IPA it's not the same as something you get in the west coast of the United States if you're up in Canada well ours are a little different if you're over in Europe what what, what someone's going to like that regional variation across what is is always customized to the palate of the local local community wouldn't you agree I would um and I but I think that style definitions are an interesting variable there right because uh, then you have something like the Midwest IPA, which doesn't have a de dedicated BJCP style. It's definitely a thing. And, it's, you know, their beers are way maltier. Uh, if you want to uh, agree that Midwest IPA deserves its own designation. Um, and so uh, at the end of the day, a bit of it's all a semantics game. Uh, do, do we want to classify styles as such? And how rigid do we want to be about their interpretations? But I will say, Jamie, longer is, a, is it's kind of universal. And, you know, yep. that doesn't seem to have the same level of regional variation other than accessibility. Yep. And then maybe like kind of like sub style, whether the, like North German pills might be kind of hard to find in rural Arkansas uh, as a, you know, a sub style. But um, generally speaking, lager kind of seems fairly universal in terms of quality and approach. Yeah, I get that. I, but I, I think the point is, is, is right that that the. When you read the BJCC, uh, BJCP guidelines, that you know what what is you know uh, mid to medium hoppiness or mid to you know high bitterness is def you know as soon as anyone reads those words, they put them in their own regional context, and and so what's high bitterness 
where I am and around the beers that are regional to me might be very different from someone who's somewhere else. So I get, I, I get that there are standards and, and those standards I think are well known across the judging panel, but I'm not sure they necessarily translate to, you know, the regional context. Um, you know, I can't tell you the number of times I've flipped through something in um, untapped and someone's like, yeah, you know, oh, it's ridiculously bitter. And it's like, oh, it's kind of not that bad. You yeah, know, it, again, it's just the, you know, regional variation, what people's expectations are. So, right. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're totally right. And part of it is that these things, businesses have to make money. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Um, local palates reign supreme and, and really dictate um, what brewers can get away with. Uh, hey, Jordan, um, Dave had a yeah. question about West Coast Pills versus Cold IPA versus India Pale Lager. And so I'm kind of curious to watch you navigate what the difference is. Oh, I'd love Thank to. you. Um, so I think that really it all started with India Pale Lager, uh, which was basically throwing pitching lager yeast and cold fermenting and otherwise an IPA. Um, and I think that that style was kind of problematic because that um, truly cold fermentation created a lot of sulfur and that may or may not have uh, worked well with, you know, certain hot varieties and certain approaches, uh, as well as the high bitterness that we were using back when IPL was a thing in 2010 or something, because, you know, that's back in the uh, um, IBU war era. So that, you know, I think we kind of left that behind. But generally speaking, IPL is an IPA. And as we just talked about, that um, has a variety of interpretations, um, fermented cold in a traditional lager fermentation. A cold IPA has a couple different uh, differentiating factors. One is uh, if we're to, to listen to Kevin Davies' advice, who invented the style here in Portland um, at Wayfinder, uh, is that we are to ferment with lager yeast at a warmer temperature normal than lagers, but colder than normal for ales, like 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and we're using traditional lager yeast. Although he will, in, in articles and stuff, he said, but, you know, if you want to try it with fermented Chico cold or like Kolsch yeast, you know, go for it. But it, his, historically, um, it, it's using re, true lager yeast. It's using adjunct. And I, I don't have the percentages in front of me, but let's say 30% uh, corner rice. And that's really going to dry it out. Um, it's also more bitter than kind of the modern West Coast interpretation um, in that we're, you know, 80, 100 IBUs or something like that with a fairly significant bittering charge at 60 minutes um, compared to some of the kind of more modern approaches where like I would recommend 20 bittering units for your first edition. I think Kevin recommends like 40 or something like that. And so his uh, catchphrase is Western than West Coast. And so he's intentionally driving a bit more bitterness. Um, with this, but also the malt bill is all light grains. So like, you know, 70% Pilsner malt and 30% corn or rice. And so it's really, really dry and really, really light, no color, no malt character effectively. And um, uh, that is dry hopped during a spoonding or croisoning phase, uh, capped. So the theory being is that you're capturing aromatics that otherwise volatize off via the blow off. Um, and then a short lagering period, uh, filtered and then consumed fairly fresh. Um, 
compare that to a West Coast Pilsner, um, which is fermented cold with lager yeast at lager to traditional lager pitch rates, um, but using a Pilsner-like grist, so 100% Pilsner malt or 100% 95 Pilsner malt and 5% Carahel, something like that, um, and Pilsner bitterness levels, so like 40 IBUs or something like that, um, but then like a cold IPA or a IPL, huge whirlpool and huge dry hop additions. And so I think th that's really what differentiates these things is the temperature at which we're fermenting, uh, whether or not we're using adjuncts and the, the uh, IBUs that we're pumping into this. Um, the, the, the West Coast Pilsner, I think, does justify its own category designation as a result because it's like half the bitterness of the other two styles, despite similar levels of dry hopping and perhaps whirlpool. I'd also like to add for mine, I like to do um, German style hops pre-flame out. So I have Tetanang as my, um, my 15 and five minute additions. And then I do that massive whirlpool and then of American hops and uh, American dry hops. And I, I mean, it's just a crushable, crushable beer. In West Coast Pills? Yes. Yeah, and I have seen that. And I spoke with Justin at Ghost Town, who's one of the originators of the style. Um, and there's a really great craft beer and brewing podcast episode that's a roundtable on West Coast Pills. And notably, I don't think any of the like Highland Parks or Ghost Towns of the World are doing that. But I do know others are, um, at least at the homebrew level. I, I, have, I have a friend that's got one on draft right now that uses that method I haven't tried yet, and I'm excited to try it. I haven't played around with that. But um, I think a lot of the California examples, they're all U.S. sexy hops, Citra Mosaic, oh, and New Zealand hops, um, Nectaron, et cetera. I, I have not heard of them using noble hops at all in, in these West Coast Pilsners. Yeah, we, we have one, um, a brewery here in, in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, that, that made a West Coast Pilsner. And it tasted very much like, a, um, like that, that they had added some old world hops. That's kind of how I modeled my, my recipe, which I, again, Crushable, love it. <laughs> and maybe there's a fourth one we should mention here, which is Italian pills. Where does that fit into this? Uh, oh yeah, schematic? right. <laughs> um, and so Italian pills is um, standard Pilsner grist, standard Pilsner fermentation, um, no, standard noble hop hopping, except it's then dry hopped with noble hops. And it's a fairly moderate, like mild dry hopping rate. Um, so in a five gallon homebrew batch, maybe two ounces, two and a half ounces, three ounces. For me, that's mild because I'm doing like 10 ounces and five gallons of IPA. Um, but versus West Coast pills would be more like eight to 10 ounces um, dry hop. Uh, but the, 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 the Italian pilsner is using noble hops, um, Saphir, um, Tetanang, uh, are some that I've heard. What about dry hopping rates for cold IPA? What would you suggest? Uh, I would I would go like normal high, so five to ten ounces per five gallon batch, or uh, one to two ounces per gallon. Well, if you want to pivot a bit, uh, Haven had a pretty good question. Uh, he was wondering what your uh, general approach to competing and brewing for competition look like, more specifically. Um, are you brewing specifically for competition? Or do you just brew 
what you like to drink and entering it into uh, whatever fits a specific mm-hmm. style. And on top of that, um, do you have a particularly successful recipe? Mm-hmm. Um, so generally speaking, I'm brewing for enjoyment, um, trying to make the best beer possible. And um, so, and especially when I was trying to win as many awards as possible, submit every beer, no matter how good it is. Um, what I've learned is if you want to w- win like the state championship, that's based on number of medals um, weighted by, you know, gold versus best of show and stuff like that. Um, you can't win with one great beer, but you can't win with a hundred bad beers either. It's somewhere in the middle. And so uh, generally speaking, my attitude is like, I would like an IPA on tap. How would I brew that? And then I enter it in competition. Um, but uh, I also brew uh, or make uh, mixed fermentation sours and Belgian beers that are stored in bottle conditioned bottles. And those stick around for a long time and continue to be great for, especially the sours for years. So part of winning competitions, like a lot of medals, is having stock to enter. And so I'm brewing what I like, but I was brewing a ton. And um, being mindful of stylistic diversity to have a more spread, and then drawing from my sour bottle stock to just like sweep those categories. Um, In terms of... Uh, so the way that the Oregon State Homebrewer of the Year system works is you are awarded bonus points for diversity of wins. And so although I was um, brewing beers I wanted to drink, that did influence me to branch out a little bit. So it's like, you know, I've already won for Pilsner. How about I make a Vienna lager? I'd like to have a Vienna lager on tap. That sounds nice. I haven't won for Vienna lager this year yet. So there was a bit of influence there, but um, I didn't make a British beer just so I could win for British beer. Um, in terms of recipes that have done well, um, we have a statewide IPA competition, um, and I won, um, gold in an American IPA the last two years in a row. Um, I actually, not this year, um, cause I haven't been really been competing much this year, but 22 and 21, I won uh, gold in that. And so I think that those, I, the, I've had really good success with those IPA recipes. And I could talk about that. Um, my Marzen uh, often wins, um, and, um, my sours typically win, um, but that's not really a a recipe, uh, specifically. And I could talk about mixed fermentation approaches if people are interested in that. Um, but the IPA recipes are, uh, and the margin recipe are all available on the website. Um, for, uh, the margin recipe was recently featured in an article, um, comparing, um, what was that? It was a recent one, not ALDC. Oh, yeast oxygen scavenging. So if you look at the yeast oxygen scavenging uh, article on the website, uh, that's my Marzen recipe. Um, and then the very first uh, article I ever did that I mentioned earlier, the uh, post-boil acidification, uh, that's a fantastic West Coast IPA recipe. Um, there's a slight variation in the one that we published, which I use Strata um, instead of Centennial, because that's what I had on hand. Um, but you can just swap out Centennial for Strata in that recipe one-to-one and that'll get you to my like kind of core recipe. And that's, uh, Nelson Citra Centennial at approximately a four to one ratio. Um, and then the other IPA recipe that has done really well, uh, which one, um, 
second best of show, I think, uh, in the last uh, Oregon IPA competition, um, is a is a BIY brew it yourself mosaic cyclone recipe on the website. And that's using all mosaic hops, but using every possible variety uh, or form you can get your hands on. T90, whole leaf or whole cone, uh, Lupomax, Spectrum, uh, you name it. And um, that is a really incredible recipe. The potency of combining all these different sources of mosaic is will just explodes out of the glass in your face. And you would my, you're, you will not believe it's a single hop beer. It is so complex. Um, latest yeah. question, curious. Oh, wait, what was that? Oh, I was just gonna read the question, but go ahead. <laughs> yep. Um, and no, Trevor, I've never used T45s. Um, okay, so Brent uh, asks, I'm curious about your hop water article. Do you think the non-yeast batch showed signs of oxidation? Hell yes. Um, so I've had uh, I've had friends that have made hop water without yeast. Um, there were lots of contributors that made hop water without yeast, and it didn't seem to oxidize. But in that experiment where I compared a hop water where yeast was pitched and one where it was not, uh, the non-yeast batch turned like brown, and it it had the, the smell and the taste uh, of a horribly oxidized product. It was absolutely putrid. I've never had anything that was like, as soon as the taster lay to BJCP taster, put it in their face, they were just frowning and like, it tasted like poison. And so um, I'm not convinced that yeast is required to prevent oxidation of a hop water, but it clearly has um, really strong insurance benefits in that regard. So that, that recipe, just because I, I know we talked about that, um you introduced heat with your um hot water recipe so i'm wondering if heat and a summerization has some kind of effect on actual oxidation and that's why the yeast is somewhat kind of a good scavenger there and, and, and what your thoughts are around that because then we talked about that a little bit uh yeah i don't know because um the the in addition to the heat uh i saw ostensibly summarizing um it was boiled for de-aerating the water and so that's why you boil in theory is to de-aerate, which I would assume is to prevent oxidation of the, of the, of the liquid. Um, but nonetheless, um, it appears that on use of batch uh, oxidized. And I will note that, you know, these were, it went into purge kegs. Uh, I used closed purge transfer methods to transfer it um, to serving kegs and did all my normal oxygen mitigation techniques. And yet it wasn't enough. Um, and for those that are interested in um, this kind of approach to hop water, um, it, uh, I'm going off memory here, but this is the more beer Lagunitas method. If you just Google search more beer hop water, they have a really good article and video on this, but it's, um, the water is brought to 170, at which point you pull off a dip hop, um, which is where you're soaking or steeping hops in 170 degree water in this case, waiting for, um, the, the rest of the batch to finish. Um, and then you bring that to a boil, you boil for 10 minutes or something to de-aerate it. Uh, and then you add uh, your flame out hops um, for a five gallon batch. It's uh, about two ounces in your dip hop and two ounces in your uh, flame out. Uh, then you cool that down to a 10 minute whirlpool, cool that down to yeast pitching temp. And then you pitch um, a whole pack of yeast is what they recommend. I don't know if that much is necessary. Um, 
uh, flagship is what I use and what they use in the article. Um, and the other thing I omitted there is you're lowering the pH to like 3.2 to 3.6 or 3.3 to 3.6 or something like that. And using a two to one or three to one uh, chloride to sulfate ratio. I was just looking at that picture. I was just looking at that picture, Alex, and it says the one on the right is the no yeast. And I don't believe you. Yeah, what, it just looks like beer. Oh, right. Oh. Okay. Okay. Just, just want to make sure that the, it, it must be like a typo on the website. It says, it says left yeast, right no yeast. I was like, that's not right. That's right. No, that, that really? that's yeah, that's right. absolutely correct. Yeah. That's what he just said. Right is no yeast. But how long did that sit, Jordan? I haven't read that article. Not long. Really. I don't remember the number. I mean, it, it, we say how long until we started serving the tasters, but it came, I mean, just it instantly oxidized during the, the resting phase while the yeast was it's, ostensibly it, it biotransforming like or something. It says like about like a week, three days before uh, reduced serving pressure and then a few more days of conditioning. Um, and yeah, it looked like a beer. Um, and it had That's crazy. way more head formation as well That's which so i thought odd. was weird um but when i showed the photos to the contributors they were like you must have accidentally poured the wrong keg <laughs> i mean i've i've made hot water. lines we were coming up with anything and i've never used yeast in my hot water and i've no. never had to turn that color yeah i i've no. i've made hot water i've never done i've never uh brought up a temperature i usually would do like a dry hop and it looks like the one on the, on the left I always do ambient hopping or cold yeah. hopping. So I would just throw the hops in just filtered water or treated yeah. water rather, and then throw it in the fridge with some CO2 to purge it and uh, then and leave it there. Usually, for usually I'll filter it. I'll have like a, like a filter on, on the, uh, the floating dip tube. And, that, and that's how I do it. Hmm. I'm, it looks exactly uh, like that. And, and that. That's why hop water that looked very I hypothesized heat. Mm. Yeah. Maybe. That's why I emphasized heat earlier, because Jordan introduced heat into this, right. which could have caused some other things for hops to like um, increase oxidation rates or any number of things that I don't really understand. But that's the one thing you're, that you're doing more we do with our hot water, where we just yeah. But 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 as we know, the the hotter the 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 liquid, the less like the less gas it can hold into it. Right, so the the more you heat it, the more likely you're going to reduce oxygen. In the right, right. but then warmer right. in, in the, the kettle happens faster. Right. right, and so maybe there's something that's different. Maybe there's a more oxidative potential of is isomerized hops hmm. than non-isomerized. Uh, I will say uh, I'm currently collaborating on an article that's about to be published, and I think Zymergy. Um, my primary author, he's got more details of the publication uh, source, but I think it was Zymergy, where we sampled and then um, had BJCP judges rate a whole bunch of commercial hop waters and then reached out to all the manufacturers or brewers to get their processes to try to see if we could hone in on which processes are making the best ones. And um, the Lagunitas one, the Lagunitas method, fared very well. But some of the one of the best ones we had was actually a collaboration with Dr. Uh, Tom Shellhammer, and it was all I believe it was all cold steeped, um, and so it clearly um, 
the more beer method is not the only way to make world-class hop water. So I'm excited to try this uh, cold steep method that uh, Shellhammer taught us. And uh, you can, I believe it's Symergy, and I think it might be the next issue or the next issue after that that will get published. Can you can you describe this method for us that are not part of the AHA? <laughs> uh, I, I don't have the notes in front of me and uh, we did several, um, so I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was basic, if what I remember was basically dry hopping, um, de -air, cooled de-aerated water with a pH, I wanna say three, eight or something like that. Um, so they were reducing the pH some, uh, I mean, port, this is a Portland brewery and Portland water is like seven or eight. Um, so reducing the pH to like closer to four um, and uh, a cold steep was what they did. And it made a really, really nice one. That's what I'm, I got, I'm drinking some hot water here. That's that's kind of my method I've kind of been moving toward is uh, mm -hmm. basically dry hopping two to three ounces in a five gallon batch. Um, I've been playing around a little bit of that ox block, which is like deaeration, but I think it's, you know, I, I've, I've always added a little uh, Camden to remove the chlorine from my, my tap water. So that, that may do something with oxygen, but I don't do any boiling or, or deaeration, but I just, you know, dry hopping it at room temperature for one to two days and yeah. then kegging it. And, and I think, I think the thing, the biggest thing I've found is like, if, if you, if you see any hot particles floating in it, it's going to be astringent. So whatever you yeah. can do to crash those out or filter those out or use a hot bag, I don't use a hot bag, but I, you know, do it thoroughly on like a bouncer filter to try to you know keep hops out of the keg and let it it still takes a couple of days in the keg to to settle and clear and but so it'd be interesting to see that article in different ones and i always wondered the lagunitas their 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 hoppy refresher always seems like it's got some kind of citrusy and sweetness to it that i'm not quite sure that they that they released that <laughs> yeah. in the more beer article um, well, so apparently there's two different types of Lagunitas hop water, uh, the bottled one and the canned one, um, and they taste different. The, the bottled one tastes more hoppy or like, like hop hops, um, not, not necessarily bitter. Uh, the canned one kind of tastes like a LaCroix or something like that. Um, and the bottled one says water yeast hops. The can one says water yeast hops and natural essences or something like that. Uh, we were getting a watermelon candy vibe. So um, I do think that they're, they, they're putting some sort of fruit flavoring in the can one. Do you, does, uh, do you think pH has something to do with the oxidative effects? Does uh, pH have some sort of effect on like say you boil the water, deoxygenate it, and then you drop the pH, say a lactic acid or whatever, phosphoric. Does that have an effect on how much oxygen that water can then reuptake? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not, in, I'm not a chemist, but. Neither am I. Um, I mean, everything, pH predicts everything, right? So I'm inclined to believe that probably does but i have no clue which direction or whether it's uh significant enough to to matter good quite yeah. good good theory I, I, but but i think the closer that you get to seven ph and, and, and yeah i'm not a chemist just know a few but i've heard that uh the closer you get to seven ph the faster oxidation happens 
So lowering pH might actually make a pretty significant impact. Maybe that's also, also the maybe, maybe that's also the reason why uh, like the post boil acidification for IPAs is kind of helping that hot brightness shine through after fermentation. That's what they say, and um, that's what I found um, in my experiment on it. Uh, also, the other thing we know is that oxygen is more uh, prone at warmer temperatures, and the shell hammer method, as we're calling it, um, I believe is a cold dry hop. So I don't have it in front of me. I don't know how cold is cold, if that's 40 degrees or 32 degrees, but um, uh, we'll report back. Uh, Ice cold. I'm the secondary author, so I don't have all the notes. Ice cold is the answer, if you remember the song. How cold oh, is cold? Okay. Ice cold. Ice cold. <laughs> Shout out to Outcast. Uh, Jordan? Yeah. Um, can we talk a little second for uh, or about kettle souring and uh, mixed fermentation sours? Sure. So Any... I've been using. Yeah, what's up? Yeah, so um, I've been using the reverse, um, I think a reverse kettle sour method. It's what uh, Milk the Funk is referring to it. It's like pitching quite plus a lactobacillus strain at I don't know, roughly about 30, 35 Celsius. So it's like 90, 95, 98 degrees Fahrenheit. And then just letting it ride instead of doing a kettle sour. But um, I never did a kettle sour in my five years of brewing um, because I really didn't want it to have a uh, electric element going like on for a matter of like two days. So. Am I missing out uh, with doing a kettle sour, or what do you think about it? Um, I'm, I'm plugging my computer in, so I'm, but I'm here. Uh, so can, when you're doing this Kvike method, are you adding hops? No, not at all, not at all. So um, I just um, add hops probably um, after, you know, the souring after the fermentation. So just as a dry hop, just to, you know, add some bitterness, um, because I also know that if you don't any hops uh, to the hot side, the the hops in in the cold side will also increase the bitterness potential of the beer. Not only the perceived bitterness, but I think also the actual IBU. I don't know. Doesn't make any sense to me, but. So just to confirm your process, you're fermenting warm um, with kvike, and then you're adding a lactose right. source. And are are you uh, are you doing anything in between? The fermentation and the lacto. No, actually, I just you know um, I just brew a regular beer, then uh, so mash lauder uh, brings it up to I don't know like almost pasteurization temperatures, so 90 Celsius, so 190 I think Fahrenheit, and then I'll just cool it down to my pitching temperatures and pitch at the same time lactobacillus cultures and a quite strain. Uh, oh, you're co-fermenting. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay, so uh, there, there's a couple things there. One is you and you don't, you're not adding hops, so you run the risk of it getting too sour. Is that been a problem for you? 
not so far. Um, usually, I also, um, when I made these sours, I uh, added some lactose because, you know, I was doing like a fruited milkshake goza, which is a thing here in Europe, especially in Germany. Like, um, oh, there are some brewers from the UK uh, called North Brewing Co. and uh, some others who are doing like these um, triple fruited gozas. And they are really nice. So I tried to mimic that and that worked really well for me. I mean, they are not too sweet, but they are like really balanced in sourness, sweetness, fruitiness. So they are really nice. And are you taking a pH measurement? Yeah, I did initially. Um, I I haven't done it in a while because I don't own a P, pH meter anymore. But when I worked for a homebrew store, um, I had a pH meter on hand, and that worked. Yeah, I think I think it went to down like what was it like three point seven ish. Yeah. And what is your lactose source? Um, what was yeah. it? Uh, I'm, I'm, I think it was a White Labs uh, lactose. I think it was. Oh, uh, which which strains are out there? They don't want to go out. So. Yeah. Um, I don't. They make a few different ones. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I believe that their lactose strains are not as aggressive as Good Belly, which a lot of Americans are using. So. Yeah. Um, I think that your method works well for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, however, I, I would be worried when, if using good belly or some other, what is that, plantarum source, I would be worried about it getting too sour. So uh, I think that as long as you're not getting too sour, what you're doing is great. Uh, that, that is a risk with plantarum. Is it getting sour, more sour than you would want it to be? Um, and that's so, why we then stop, boil it to stop the souring. Meanwhile, right. a mixed fermentation approach or co-fermentation, we're typically using some hops, like a couple IBUs. Um, and we're also typically doing that at room temperature. And so it's not souring so quickly. Uh, and even then, we're often blending with less sour beer to dial that pH in. So uh, I don't think you're missing out on anything um, as long as you're just not having a source that sours too aggressively. I think I used plantarum or no, Brevis, Brevis. Uh, I, I just looked it up, it was Brevis. So um, yeah, it, it, it worked fine. And I know about the Good Belly Method. You also just published a philosophy show video where Martin Keen was using Good Belly. And I don't think we have them around here in Germany, but we have a Yakult or some other, you know, like probiotics. Uh. Yeah. Um. I believe I believe that lacto brevis is not a good kettle sourer, um, but that's great. You're getting down to three seven. Maybe the kvike is influencing some of that pH reduction, um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think you're, with what with what you're doing, that's working great. I don't know that you're missing out on anything. Uh, I would say I I'm sure that there is probably some sort of perceivable difference, and uh, whether it would pass a triangle test, who knows. Um, between the various lactose sources. Uh, and some people really like the flavor the plantarum creates. So maybe you're missing out on that, um, but I don't think that it's the end all be all. There's plenty of great lab sources out there. Um, but if you were ever to get your hands on some plantarum, I would not recommend your method out of fear of it getting too sour. Okay, okay. I think the Swanson tablets are, you know, these little pills. Mm -hmm. I think they are plantarum, right? Yeah. So if using those, I would lacto acidify first, then boil, then ferment, 
Um, and you know, I've thought about this, a no boil approach is you could immediately add Kvike and maybe like a dry hop load, and maybe that would effectively uh, knock the lacto out without having to do a boil step in between, but I've never tried that. Or actually with Philly Sour also, I think like there there would be a nice way, you know, just to just get the sourness right. Because Philly Sour is uh, very uh, fast outcompeted by other yeast strains. So maybe that would work too. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I guess in the sour realm, um, Haven's asking about uh, mixed fermentation process. Uh, mentioning that they maintain a Solera and a decent sized mix firm program for about two years and finally getting to taste the first bottles. Awesome. So um, uh, generally speaking, my approach is make some work and add some bugs and then wait six months and then um, then the next step begins. So uh, recipe formulation um, doesn't matter that much. 50-50 Pilsner and or Turo and um, wheat malt. 60, 40, you know, 80, 20, whatever, not that big of a deal. Um, and then five IBUs or something like that, I think is a good starting point. Um, I really like the boutique cultures uh, from bootleg biology and um, uh, yeast bay. Um, hadn't, didn't have as much luck with East Coast yeast. I don't even know if that Al or whatever his name was is even doing that anymore. Um, but I know that Mike Tonsmeyer and others really liked that stuff, but I think I got on that train a little late. Um, so yeah, so you add your boutique cultures. I always do a, a, a co-pitch, I don't do a staggered pitch. So I'm adding um, my micro blend, which is, uh, you know, Brett's and Pedios and Lactose and Sacks. And then just, it's just in a carboy that I just leave alone for six months, just making sure to keep the um, airlock uh, full. Uh, I used to do um, oak cubes. I don't really think it's necessary, so I don't deal with that anymore because um, you're not trying to make an overly oaked beer unless you are. And then if that's if you want some sort of interesting wood character, I actually do a blender and have like a really concentrated small amount that I can add to my final blend to dial in the, the, the wood character that I'm looking for there. Um, but yeah, so you the, the best practice would be to make several. Um, and like batch A is like, amalgamation and um, uh, what's another one from the yeast bay, um, you know, some some other blend from them, amalgamation is a Brett blend, uh, a lacto and PDO blend, and then a sack uh, and carboy A, and then maybe carboy B is like uh, the, the, the bootleg um, mini Funkopolis blend or something like that. And then once you have a few of these things, uh, you can come back and start to taste them but before you even open them and taste anything, brew a batch of Saison and get that as dry as possible. And I do, I, I brew Saison for blending like I would want to drink it. So standard bitterness and standard strength alcohol. And uh, one thing I didn't, I said earlier, five IBUs, you could use aged hops or you could just use whatever. Um, we can talk Lambic production in a second. I'm talking American sour beer here. Uh, and then when it comes time to blending day, I always have a, uh, a good stock of fresh, clean, dry beer, like Saison or um, Belgian single, uh, because these microbes should work and uh, often are way more sour than I would ever want them to be, uh, a blend to be on their own. So I've consistently found I need fresh, clean beer 
that's not sour to blend in to hit that target. And that's why you want dry beer because you don't want bottle bombs, right? If you're going to fruit this, you can use Hellas or something like that because the, the, the fruiting is going to knock those, you know, that process, you're going to ferment that off during the fruiting process. So uh, it's blending day and you've got um, one to three carboys of sour beer and then um, a carboy or two of clean beer. And uh, you want to get samples of all of them, maybe like a half of a pint glass, full pint glass or so. Um, uh, a pint glass is probably about right. So you can measure the gravity um, with a hydrometer, assuming you don't have some sort of fancy pants, you know, Anton Parr thing. Um, and you want to test all the gravity in all of them and test all the pH in all of them and, and taste test them. Uh, you do not want to be, if you're going into package that day, you don't want to be blending in something that's above a Play-Doh and a half or so, right? If it's finished at 10, 12, it's going to create a bottle bomb. Um, and for that reason, always use really thick Belgian bottles when packaging these things. If you're going into a keg and it's forced carbonating, a lot of what I'm about to say doesn't necessarily matter. So uh, you've taken your pH readings, you've taken your uh, final gravity readings, and you've tasted and smelled them. If anything tastes or smells like poison, you throw it away. Uh, so assuming everything is decent, um, then you start your blends. So uh, I, what I used to do would actually rate things on various intensity levels and then create like um, figure out the average uh, result that I want and how the various inputs would achieve that. Like a zero to three scale in terms of Brett Funk, a zero to three scale in terms of like perceived acidity, um, a zero to three scale in terms of like wood uh, intensity. And um, you can then map it out to have like, this one's gonna be funk forward, this one's gonna be acid forward or whatever it is. Uh, but now I just kind of go simply on tongue and pH. So if I have sour stock that's 2.9 um, and my Saison is 4.1 pH or something like that, I will use a dropper and figure out the ratio that's necessary to get a pH of like 3.3 3 to 3.5. Um, in my opinion, anything below 3.2 is just too sour. It's not enjoyable anymore. Um, and uh, you know, anything above three, seven doesn't really taste like a sour beer anymore. So once I figure out my blend, uh, in terms of pH, I've found that what I'm producing, it tends to taste good. And so taste blending hasn't tended to be as important. Um, it's really been dialing in the pH because again, I'm putting quality stock in to begin with. Um, if something tasted off, I wouldn't be blending with it in the first place. So, uh, when I will typically fruit these beers, right? So uh, what I'll often do is be collecting whole fruits. Um, and then when it comes time for uh, blending day, have a whole bunch of various adjuncts to, to like tap into, right? And so uh, maybe do one on cherries, one on blueberries. Uh, I often have more stock than I have fruit for. Uh, so then like one on dry hops or one on wine soaked oak or something like that. And so um, when fruiting these beers, my recommendation is about a one-to-one -one ratio of fruit to beer. Um, it's just kind of a, a bummer when you put like two years into this and all this money and all this time, and then the cherry flavors like kind of there. Um, so they're really expensive beers to make, assuming you don't own your own fruit source. Um, but it's worth it. So uh, 
let's say my ratio is two to one Saison to sour stock to achieve a pH of three, three. So I then just kind of eyeball it and I have a um, bottling uh, bucket with the um, like uh, the markers on it. And so I just try to get approximately that ratio in there, not too worried about a milliliter or five up or down in either direction. Um, there was a question about oxidation. I am concerned about that. So what I'm doing is when I take my sample, because um, I sour beers are the only kind of beers that I do in carboys. Otherwise, I'm fermenting in kegs and have a much better oxygen mitigation plan. And I have like a old rack and cane and stuff that I use for sour only. I'll, uh, when I take my sample, I'll take my um, CO2 uh, rig and I'll have unscrewed uh, the, the gray gas post QD off, stick it in there, flip the switch, blast some CO2 in there, take it out and then rebung it. And um, in addition, when I'm creating the blend, I jerry-rigged a, a carb stone to my CO2 source so I can actually bubble CO2 in the bottling bucket during the blending phase. The key here though, is I'm bottle conditioning all of these. So I'm not having problems with oxidation in my bottles. Uh, there's this like really, really high ranked BJCP judge in Portland and he picks up oxygen on every beer ever you've ever served him, but he doesn't get them on my uh, mixed firm sours, but he gets on every keg beer I've ever made. Um, so I do think that, that there's a lot of uh, benefit, oxygen scavenging benefit to the bottle conditioning approach. Um, and it, it's gonna give you a lot of insurance against potential oxidation during the blending phase. So we've put our blended beer on fruit. And I guess I didn't mention that. I add the whole fruit um, to the, a new carboy. Uh, the, I like wide mouth ones to actually get it in easier. Um, otherwise it's a pain in the neck. Um, and then I rack on top of that, trying to get the approximate ratios that I've blended the pH correctly earlier, right? Um, you wanna have like just a little bit of headspace because you don't want too much to, to have it go vinegar in the fruiting vessel. Um, and I always screw it up and it always blows off because it expands greatly and foams greatly during the fruit tertiary fermentation. And so then I've got to clean up the mess. Um, so good luck trying to get that right. It's the Goldilocks scenario, got to get it right, just right. And I always accidentally fill too much. Um, I typically fruit only needs six weeks. You can go six months. Um, uh, if you go too long, you're going to see mold on top. So maybe that's don't punch that down. I don't really typically do punch downs. Um, and I have a, a friend that's a very successful sour maker in Oregon. You've had probably heard of his beers and he's like, oh yeah, we see mold all the time, you know, just rack off of it. So uh, that, that is a risk. And if you're gonna age these fruited mixed firm beers for a really long time, but you're just like not racking the mold into your bottling bucket or whatever, um, haven't killed anyone yet. Um, and then um, on bottling day, uh, I'd use either table sugar or corn sugar, whatever I have around. Um, and I'm carving to like three, two, three, five volumes. Um, and notably sour beers have a uh, lower level of dissolved CO2 in them due to their age. So there is a um, calculator by on Mike Tonsmeyer's website uh, for this that accounts for the reduced um, loss uh, associated with aged beer. 
but um or you can just add an extra point you know use the northern brewer calculator and add an extra point two volumes or something and probably call it a day uh and then i'm using really thick belgian bottles so um let's see here so were there any follow-ups or clarifications on that uh, i was asking what yeast and sugar you use for bottle conditioning oh i omitted my acid shock starter step i'm so glad you mentioned that so um bottling sour beers uh is really risky if you don't do what i'm about to describe i've had sour beers and strong beers not re-ferment or carbonate in the bottle um, due to their strength or their uh, low pH. And so uh, there, this is a sure proof method to make sure that your mixed firm sour beers carb in the bottle um, is the acid shock starter method. There used to be a rare barrel uh, blog on it and I think they took it down. So I just remember it. So it's really simple. You take the, uh, one part sour beer, not the blend, the actual sour beer, uh, and one part two Play-Doh sugar water. And you add to that two grams per five gallons of bottle, to be bottled beer of CBC, rehydrated CBC1 into that solution. You do that the day before you bottle. Then on bottling day, you have this little slurry, uh, and then you add that to your bottling bucket, and that acclimates the yeast, the bottle conditioning yeast, to a low pH environment. And uh, I've never had a problem with sour beers carbonating since I incorporated that method. Prior to that, half the time they wouldn't carbonate properly. That, that might be why one of my strong ales last year didn't carbonate at all. <laughs> so for the strong ale, um, just add CBC one every time. You don't need to. You don't need to do any kind of condition uh, day before conditioning. But any sort of strong beer that you plan to bottle condition, if it's above nine percent, just use CBC one. And the rule of thumb is two grams per five gallons. Makes sense. Yeah, and I think there's also a question. Uh, I think also from Trevor. Is is there a reason to use carboys instead of kegs for your sours? Figured it'd be easier to transfer from a keg than a carboy. Yeah, um, probably the main reason is that I don't have enough kegs. So my kegs are locked up in um, lager and IPA production and serving. Because remember, I'm fermenting in the same kegs I'm serving in. Uh, I do transfer, but a given keg serves multiple purposes in my brewery. And so... Uh, given that the same vessels are could be fermenting a beer or serving a beer, but I do transfer off the yeast. I don't, I don't serve on the yeast. Um, I just don't have enough kegs to do that. But if I did, why not? Uh, the, the, um, the, the other thing is that I'm not really mixing my sour equipment with my clean equipment. So I would probably want to have dedicated kegs for that. Um, so I'm not borrowing from my clean stash to make these sour beers. Uh, that being said, um, I'm not that concerned about keg uh, contamination. I think that proper cleaning regimens should be fine because I do make kettle sours in my kegs. Um, and I've never had a, um, a clean beer go sour 
but you know the benefit of using a keg for kettle souring um and this kind of uh, david and mentioned this earlier but i'll say this about uh, a, a one way to do it without tiring up your kettle for so long is if you're using uh plantarum it's hop intolerant so there's not really a big risk of a subsequent pilsner going sour if it that keg had previously held a kettle souring beer um but yeah dave what i've done is i don't actually use a kettle for kettle souring i go into a keg and put a heat wrap around it on a temp controller and hold that at 100 degrees fahrenheit or whatever because i don't want to use it because and i've got co2 on it too so that it's an oxygen free environment that's awesome yeah yeah i mean also, you could just, you know, like uh, do a small fermentation chamber with a heating element with a cable or a heating pad or something like that. And just, you know, yeah, that's great. Awesome. Um, oh, and then I see here, Dave, you asked, how long do you leave the beer in the fermenting keg on the yeast? Do you transfer quickly after fermentation? Um, was that a question about sour beer? No, that was about uh, regular beers because I also use uh, corny kegs as a fermenter because they're right. awesome, you know? Yeah, and so I will say, uh, to answer the question you didn't ask, is I leave the sour beer on the yeast for the its lifespan. Um, I don't rack to secondary out of risk of oxidizing. Um, I've never had any autolysis problems or anything like that. So um, in terms of leaving the beer on the yeast in the fermenting keg, um, I ferment to completion and then I take it off. Uh, typically, cool it down before transferring off. Um, but in a so in my loggers, I'm stepping it down slowly because I'm typically doing a diastole rest. So it's on fermented out on the yeast for a while under pressure because I uh, spooned or croisen. So it in theory I'm killing the yeast and I I repitch the stuff no problem. So uh, it. The, and, and ale is basically as soon as it's finished, it's off the yeast. But a lager, it's on the yeast for a week or up to two, maybe after fermentation is finished, due to trying to reduce the temperature down uh, before transferring it into a lagering slash serving keg, and not having problems with autolysis. Uh, not and and the 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 yeast has been very repitchable despite common sense telling us that I'm destroying the yeast by keeping it under pressure. Kind of, kind of back to the sour thing. Uh, do you pay much attention to what temperature you store your carboys? Mm. Well, they're in the basement in Oregon, so it doesn't get that hot or that cold. So um, prob the temperature swing is probably somewhere in the realm of 59 degrees Fahrenheit up to 72 or so. Um, so I'm not paying that much attention to that. Uh, sometimes uh, for my Belgian beers, I'll actually do a warm conditioning stage like I've read about in like brew like a month or whatever, where I'll use my heating pad and put it in this like giant um, uh, cooler, igloo cooler I have. And I'll put it in there for like at like 78 degrees or something like that for two weeks to at the very least, maybe it's making them condition faster. Um, but I'm not really that concerned with temperatures as it relates to sour beers or bottle conditioning, given that 60 to 70-ish uh, range I'm dealing with, I'm comfortable there. Yeah, I was just hoping you were telling me it was okay to put some carboys in a 110 degree garage. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unless, it's, unless it's only lacto and kvike. 
do are are there uh do sour strains produce weird flavors uh i don't know once you get really hot because yeah because yeah i know plantarum likes body temperature more or less i would not feel comfortable pushing brett or pdo that high especially brett but I, I i am shooting from the hip there i have no clue for sure um, but it's not common practice these the sour yeasts are are known at least in lambic style brewing to season which is a, a a period of warm and cold temperatures so they're used to going from warmer ambient temperatures to w- colder ambient temperatures at least in in like classical brewing styles right so i i wouldn't want to push them to like 100 degrees like that seems wrong but if they go through a season of coldness where they go dormant for a while or at least less active i suppose that wouldn't be a problem to me i don't think Well, seems like most people have disappeared if you've got uh, somewhere to be, Jordan. Otherwise, we'll keep you as long as uh, you're around. I think only half the people have disappeared, Alex. We had 26 last time I counted at the highest. Right. 13, so one okay, more. Okay, sorry. <laughs> has left. Yeah, I mean, it's only 7.40 here, and I'm a bachelor tonight. Um, my girlfriend is with, with dinner and friends, so uh, I got nowhere else to be. So, um Happy to call it a night or answer in your talk about anything else that anyone has. Will wants to know if hot dogs are a sandwich or not. And surprisingly, it's not that well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Will texted the uh, the brew contributor uh, Facebook group, whatever this question, and uh, his views on this are pretty ridiculous. Um, so me and Alex started pressing him on examples and we're, I was like, what about a, sh-? he's like, if it's bread and meat, it's a sandwich. And I was like, so if I'm in a sh- at a dinner party and I take a cracker and put a piece of salami on it, that's a sandwich. And he said, yes. And, uh, I said, uh, well, what if, and he's like, well, if you're eating with your hands, right. And I was like, well, what if you had a bread bowl of chowder and you ate it with your hands? He said that would count as a sandwich, but he said it wouldn't count as a sandwich if I use a spoon nor would dipping a tortilla chip in a dip. So it's like, Will, uh, he's got some serious uh, sandwich theory that I do not agree with. Well, I'm also willing to take anything to an extreme to troll anyone else. So just keep that in mind. In case you're curious. What about calzones? They're just folded pizzas, are they not? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Pizza's gone wrong or pizza's gone to, uh, south. Is calzone really a pizza? Because it's not. It's different. It is. But if it has meat in it, it's a sandwich. Speaking, speaking of pizzas and all that, I don't think anyone's asked Jordan the classic brew club question of uh, if you were a pizza, what pizza would you be? That's my question. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought it was your desert desert uh, beer question. Uh, hmm. I have the desert island beer question. Well, well, what uh, is it, Jordan? I guess I if I was a pizza, I would be a um, uh, a sourdough crust because of my uh, affinity and for making sour beers. Um, d- desert island beer.
maybe Bitburger Pilsner. I'm terrible at favorites. What's that? I mean, what's that, Dave? Burgers is my my. I, I said why is that because um, uh, I I I was like often around the the area of Bitburg. Uh, my grandma used to come from there, and um, I remember it being really nice pilsner. You know, like really nice, bready aromas, really crisp and high bitterness. Also, that was like when I was eighteen. I mean, my palate could have changed. You know, my experience, my consciousness while tasting beers could have changed. But it's like. I don't think it's the same anymore. So, and that's what many people are referring to is like the bitterness of uh, industrial um, produced business in Germany. The bitterness has going substantially like like really going lower. Hmm. Um, yeah, and you know that was kind of like a gut reaction. Uh, because I've had so many beers in my life that it's hard to pick just one. But you know what's a really good German Pilsner? Then maybe that'd be my choice. What's it called? Roth Rothelberger? Do you know what I'm talking about? You're on your mute track. Not Rattleburger. It's like got a cartoon person with a mug on it. Um, rap. Oh, the weird Black Forest Cuckoo Clock pills. Yeah, what's that called? You mean um, you, you don't mean the Rothaus, right? No, from the Schwarzwald, a Rothaus prisoner. Yeah, Einzeple. that's the thing at Rothaus. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a really great prisoner for sure. That that beer is incredible. Um, so if 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 the Desert Island has that one, maybe I choose that over Bitburger. Uh, I might choose Bitburger over that one, honestly but it's all preference. Um, so the best answer I've ever heard of that question was Vinny Chalurzo because he's smart and he said Orval because it would never taste the same twice. You know, is I like Orval, but it's like, I don't love it. I find that beer to be a bit overhyped, but I've never had it like, you know, one week old in Belgium. I've only had year old here in the U.S., so um, you need to have it at six months, a year, 18 months. Like it, it changes flavor over time drastically. And less than three months is not very good at all. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, I've only had it, you know, a year plus. And it's not bad. It's just, it's not drinkable for me. I, it wouldn't be, if maybe a yeah, desert island, it'd have to be like a, maybe a Scandinavian island or something. It's not very crushable. Right. Or refreshing. And hopefully my audio quality improved. If not, I apologize. But um, I want to ask you a question about um, short and shoddy, because I know you've been playing with that and you've had various degrees of uh, pain points, whether whether good or bad. And I, I'm curious, like, what do you think in the short and shoddy method, especially in the lager brewing, like helps you fall short? Because I know your traditional cold. Um, cause in my opinion, water chemistry is the thing that kind of like the dab of water chemistry kind of is what sets it up for potential success or failure is getting like that water chemistry. But I wanted to see if you had some other options in there that you think help short and shoddy succeed or not succeed. Hmm. 
so I will say um, I don't think that 30 minute boils or 30 minute mashes matter. Um, I, that's not what's making a short and shoddy beer good or bad. Um, in the in the lo traditional lager brewing tradition, you know, there's probably something that you get from a step mash. Um, if anything, just in, d better dialing in fermentability, et cetera. But, um, you know, we're splitting hairs. That's not like as dramatic as like using spoiled yeast or something like that, right? So, um, and, you know, Marshall allows us to adjust the water chemistry. So I'm not just blindly adding handfuls like he does. Um, I'm measuring out my water, my water minerals and the water profiles, right? So uh, the short and shoddy lagers that I've made uh, or the, the hot chronicle lagers that I've made, uh, which both require pitching a single pack warm, have not been good in my opinion. They haven't been like, oh my God, this beer is spoiled. I have to dump it. This is going to hurt someone if they drink it. It's just not even close to my standard of lager quality. Um, and I talked about this on a recent brew lab with Cade. Um, and I think that it really comes down to ester production. Um, I'm successfully suppressing esters with high pitch rates and um, cold fermentation temperatures. And I'm just not used, my palate is not used to warm fermented lager, which has a bit of a fruity ester in it. Um, uh, or I'm wrong and I'm gonna test this on a very, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna test this in an experiment and find out if I can actually taste the difference. But uh, non-blind, um, I think, for me, it comes down to pitching temperature and pitch rate. Uh, I don't think anything about short and shoddy is wrong except the fermentation approach. I'm a big believer in uh, pitch rates, and a single pouch isn't even enough for an IPA, if, if we're to believe uh, the 0.75 per milliliter per degree Plato pitch rate. Single pouch of Imperial is good to 1045 or so for an ale, but who's brewing 1045 ales? So uh, I think that's the folly of short and shoddy is pitch rate and temperature. Um, outside of that, I think it's all fine. What do you think, Dave? So, so uh, I'll, I'll, get, I'll call Dave a second. The ones I've been most disappointed with are the ones that I did the Marshall method of just like a pinch of gypsum or something, or uh, I carefully measured almost a teaspoon in my hand of G gypsum. Those are the ones I've been most disappointed with for loggers. Like the, the other ones seem to turn out okay, but when I don't actually measure out my water chemistry stuff, trying to trying to emulate Marshall, that's when I really get sucked up. So Dave, go for it. Awesome, thank you. Um, so concerning or regarding the uh, fermentation temperature, I know for a fact that uh, one of the largest lager producers in Germany called Oettinger, I don't know if you heard of them. Mm -hmm. um, they are producing, they turn around the beers in, in like five days. I mean, I mean, you know, like they're doing filtering, centrifuging and, you know, all the stuff. So they really strip out most of the flavor of the beer, but still they come out with a, with a nice um, crisp lager. But they also ferment under pressure with like ale temperatures, I think they are fermenting at around 19, 20 degrees Celsius, so 68, uh, 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and also so for some craft breweries who do who are doing that. But when I when I did that for my recent batch of American light lager, because I, I don't know why, but I really like the stuff. Um, I, I noticed some kind of a um, lemon lemon citrus kind of aroma and flavor that I had 
And I, I don't know if that's due to the fermentation temperature. Um, I used L28 Urkel for, for my batch. It was like 70% Pilsner, 30% black rice, and like 11 IBUs uh, in a 60-minute boil with Magnum. So pretty pretty clean grist and, and recipe there. But then, um, I don't know, when I when I used the same recipe for with, with L78 Urkel, um, 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 harvest, harvest, yeah. That that's totally different story, and um, I also fermented it a little bit colder. I think like around sixteen degrees Celsius. The Urkel batch was around nineteen degrees Celsius. So I get what you're saying, but 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 then I also sometimes think most drinkers would probably not even notice that. So it's like just our you know like very very sensitive palate, or you know like oh yeah, because when I serve the short and shoddy beers of people, non-brewers, they have no complaints. Um, and so I think that you got to be, these are kind of, these are the nuances that only brewers are really going to care about. Um, but I will say that I, re, I was drinking a cream ale earlier, but I, I finished it. Uh, it was fermented with Imperial's Pilgrimage, which is the on-deck strain um, at 59 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's pretty darn clean. Um, but the brewlosity contributors that are fermenting lagers warm, they're closer to 65 Fahrenheit. So maybe, you know, below 60, it's doing a pretty good job of ester suppression. Um, but also it was using a proper pitch rate too. Um, so there, there's surely if you ferment a lager at 80 degrees Fahrenheit, it's going to taste kind of weird relative to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so I, it's not um, black or white, but uh, um, what do you think, Will? Oh, I was just going to ask you, uh, I definitely agree that pitch rate plays a huge role because I've, just myself, like, with using dry yeast and doing three-gallon batches, I mean, I'm pretty much over-pitching mm-hmm. according to normal things, like, every time. But maybe, be- maybe not. <laughs> yeah, maybe not, right? Yeah. And so they come out super clean. Um, but what I was wondering is, on these beers that you're pitching cold and you're using your your normal standard protocol pitch rates, um, are you liking those beers young or do you have to lager them before you are willing to drink them? Because I was Great. the one that question. I was the one that wrote in the the, the question to Cade mm-hmm. about the the biases of warm and and cold fermentation, mm-hmm. and I wasn't really referring to esters necessarily but just fermentation byproducts in general um with the stress conditions of being cold versus warm um i definitely think there are certain strains that like you know i've always heard the urkel strain is one that does not like warm temperatures but in general probably most most yeast probably like warmer temperatures just for a uh, metabolism standpoint Mm -hmm. um so maybe they don't produce as many byproducts and therefore like clean up quicker than like your standard cold, even though you're pitching at a, you know, you know, two times or two and a half times what an ale pitch rate would be. Um, maybe they're still producing byproducts that then have to be lagered to kind of equal out with the warm fermented. That was kind of my, my thinking. Yeah. Yeah, and so I'm guessing you probably heard the episode where we responded to the feedback. Um, and uh, I 
posit that sulfur is one thing that is of concern here with oh, yeah. cold, cold fermented lagers in that you're going to have more sulfur uh, retained ver in a colder ferment. And so the lagering time is going to give is going to help clean that up. Um, so but that being said, I'm given my methods, you know, I'm oxygenating properly with pure oxygen, um, pitching colder than I'm fermenting, you know, pitching it like 45F, fermenting at 47F, um, huge pitch rates, fresh, good yeast. My beer tastes pretty darn good the second it's cold. I'm not serving it like Keller style, um, but it tastes pretty good. Uh, but honestly, it's pretty drinkable two weeks of lagering. Um, part of that, though, is gelatin. You know, like the Brewdosphy guys say, it's powdered time. And if you can knock that stuff out of solution, it's pretty much instantly ready. Um, assuming we're talking standard standard strength lager here, like maybe a you know quadruple Bach or something would need more time. Um, but I'm uh, the only thing that sometimes is there's a little bit of sulfur right there, um, which typically isn't too much sulfur for me. Um, and maybe the fact that I'm spoonding um, is expediting it. I don't know. Um, but I'm not typically needing long lagering times, but I don't really start serving it for at least three weeks to, and, and sometimes six. Cool. Sounds good. Kind of sort of not, not related with uh, loggers. Some people seem to be kind of split on the camp of whether in the United States it's worth using German hops because of a how much they heat up and shipping times and all that. Uh, I was kind of curious where you landed on that debate. Are you in the camp yeah. of using American noble hops or do you tend to stick with German varieties despite that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're sponsored by um, uh, Yakima Valley hops. Um, so one could accuse me of bias or um, lying but I'm telling the truth that their European hops have been great for me. And I was a happy customer before I was a contributor. I've, I've used them ever since I found out about them um, and have not had problems with low quality European hops um, to the point that justified me switching to American noble varieties. So uh, I do think that if you wanna make a truly authentic tasting German Pilsner or Munich Helles, you need to use European hops to get like that from 99 to 100, right? Um, but if you weren't buying from Yakima Valley hops and you had a homebrew store that had really old, crappy, you know, European hops or really fresh Mount Hood variety or something like that, I would opt for the local. Um, but given the access that we all have with Yakima Valley hops to good European hops, I think that it gets you that just little extra bit of authenticity. Um, and I'm not seeing low enough quality to make me think that I need to look at local varieties, but you can make really good approximate approximations using American malts and American hops, but it's just not quite totally authentic tasting, in my opinion. Yeah. On a related note, do you uh, is there a certain amount of time that you wait before you chuck German or really any hops in the trash? I know mm. some people mm -hmm. have them for even five years without issue, but didn't know where you stood on that. I don't really feel comfortable using hops if there are two crop years available post what I have. So uh, once the 
2024 crop comes out, I don't want to use anything from 2022. And whether, I, but, and we all know that you can get burned and it's just, you're just rolling the dice. Right. And so sometimes it's fine, but for me, it's just, and they're like, by that time it's down, it's like this $2 worth, like just, but it's really hard to throw it away. So I, t I bring them to homebrew club meetings and typically people will take them. Yeah. All right. Will, will add a question? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of along the hop lines. Um, with the European, uh, German, and UK hops being such low alpha because of the, the, the drought that they're suffering through the last couple of years, what is your strategy as far as hopping in like a Pilsner, um, like the late editions? Would you adjust that to hit a certain IBU level at like 10 and 5 minutes or, you know, however you're doing it? Or would you just simply go off quantity? Mm, like great ounces question. Of grams? Yeah. So first off, um, I always um, adjust the assumed alpha based on assumed harvest date. And you're fudging your numbers there, right? But I do adjust the uh, alpha um, uh, for the hops that I use. I don't think Brewfather has that. So I use my, I crank up my old copy of uh, Beersmith to, to, and then manually adjust the, the, the value in Brewfather based on the Beersmith estimate. Um, and I, use low alpha the whole way through in my european beers so i'm not using american or german magnum or warrior or anything for my bittering charge for my pilsner and like you said the alphas have been so low you know once you account for predicted alpha loss these things are like 1.8 alpha acid or something like that um but i am minding my ibus uh, and I want to make a Pilsner soon, and I haven't made a German Pilsner in maybe a year. Um, have made a lot more other lager styles, just not Pilsner specifically. Made some Czech Pilsner. Um, and uh, that's a really interesting question as to whether I would, I would probably lean towards um, matching the quantity that would be associated with a similar, a standard alpha acid for a late addition um, and then overcompensate on the front end with bittering charge, et cetera, um, as opposed to like using like a 10 ounce whirlpool or something because the alpha was so low in a Pilsner style. Yeah, because don't you generally, uh, aren't you generally in the camp of uh, bittering with varieties like metal fruit and whatnot instead of Magnum? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I got some um the Herzbrucker uh, that's like 1.2 alpha or something like yep. that. So, yeah, it's crazy yeah. low. Yeah, that's right. The last Pilsner I made was uh for this uh, part this work party um earlier this year and I'm I I I can't I think I made 10 gallons um and I it took literally the entire 1 pound bag of mill fruit to make it because the alpha was so low and the hopping rates I'm using. Looks like Daniel's got a question. I don't think we've heard from Daniel yet. You seem to be a strong advocate of pH. When making a beer, I don't know if it makes a different what type of beer, but what points do you take pH and what points do you adjust? Great question. Um, I take measurements less often these days because I've, I just brew so much and I'm kind of dialed it in. And typically when I take a measurement, 
uh, it, it's what my software is predicting. It it's pretty darn close to what the software is predicting. So honestly, I only pull the pH meter out once every four brews or so, or if there's something I'm doing that's very pH specific or some unknown that I want to make sure that I got it right. Um, but uh, assuming I was to take a pH reading, um, I would take a pH reading of the mash after 15 minutes have passed with the acids and the, the salts in there. Um, and it's, I'm using, uh, I was using brewing water. I've switched to using the brew father water uh, feature. They both have been very accurate in predicting it. Um, so I don't ever have to adjust uh, after that. Um, and then uh, the post boil um, is when I'm adding my uh, a next addition of acid um, and that's at flame out um, all. And I've kind of developed rules of thumb that I often will just kind of fudge it a little bit and use a rule of thumb value instead of um, using the math to predict the amount I need uh, or then measuring it following the addition. Um, but uh, if I wanted to do it right, I would uh, then measure to check, but it's been so consistently like close enough, like at my, my pH. So I'm looking for like a 5.4 pH in my mash and then like a 5.0 post boil, um, that's what I'm looking for. But I often don't measure just because I've just done it so many times. I'm, I tend to be able to hit it just from muscle memory. Okay, thank you. When I um, did the first experiment for the website, uh, which was post boil certification IPA, um, I also checked the pH of the final product. Um, <clears throat> and we did see variation um, in the adjusted and non-adjusted batches. Um, and so when I first started getting into um, adjusting post-boil pH for IPAs, um, I, I, I did check the final product a couple times um, just to see where I was. But uh, once I've done it enough, I just haven't really taken the time. You know, honestly, I would check pH a lot more if you didn't have to calibrate the dang thing. It's kind of annoying. Same here. I hate calibrating that stupid thing. That's that's the million dollar idea. A pH meter that doesn't need calibration. That can handle boiling temperatures. Because I also mm. hate during the brew day cooling the wort down to room temp speaking of calibration i just heard that on a refractometer you should be calibrating it like every time you use it you should calibrate it i don't think i've ever heard anybody talk about that yeah i always do and that is easy um you put a little put a little dab of water on it and it often has crept since i last used it i a normal brew month for me is twice a month, like first weekend, third weekend or something like that. Um, and in two weeks, I will often see that it's no longer accurate. And, you know, it has this little screw and it should have a tiny little screwdriver that it comes with. And you just uh, put the water on it and then you turn the screw until water shows zero Play-Doh. But I will say it, it's, I mean, mine, at least it's not that far off. It's like showing point oh one or point negative point oh two or something like that so 
calibration is probably not that big of a deal, but if you want to be super accurate, um, it's necessary. Yeah, and, and usually they want you to use distilled water, but I found that tap water is close enough for most of your purposes. Um, mm. But I have a digital refract and I calibrate it every time I use it. Mine's analog, I should note. note. Um, and Portland water is very low dissolved solids. Um, so kind of similar to distilled water in some ways. Well, e even in San Antonio it, with uh, the high amount of dissolved solids we have, um, just like Austin, it's still not off by such a factor that, you know, it's going to affect your brew day unless you're like super high precision brewer. Right. So, uh, Dave, are you still Dave? Are you still awake? Or you did you wake up for this? I woke up for this actually. Yeah. <laughs> is it five a.m.? It is exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm freelancing right now. Homebrew dedication. Yeah, and it's been always awesome to you know chat with you guys. Um, I've been I'm a patron of philosophy, so I'm I used to you know hang out with the with the philosophy. Uh, video kind of chat like every other month but yeah then when I was working like full-time in a brewery I didn't have the time you know to wake up that early or I used to wake up at 4 a.m but <laughs> still not like at 2 a.m right but it's you're been fun yeah you're making us look good Well, you guys uh, got any other things you want to chat about? Jesse? Hey, can you guys hear me all right? Yes. Yeah, you bet. Hey, hi. Great to see you guys. Holy crap. This is my first time on here. Um, actually, you guys are just kind of wrapping it up. I just had some questions about the, the, brew, the brew club, if that's all right. Sorry to cut you out there, Jordan, but... Nope. Jordan Jordan can answer them if he wants. Um yeah, like uh maybe you know hate on me for not doing my homework here, but uh like what's this all about? Like do you guys get together and do this once a month or uh so we don't always have um I, I, we're we're looking at a format where we're trying to have a, we have a meeting at least once a month. Um, it's not always somebody like Jordan, who's somewhat uh, brew famous. Um, but sometimes it's um, local guys like Frank who are talking about their DIY stuff, or maybe we're just doing a hangout. But we do have a once a month hangout, and oftentimes we have spectacular guest speakers such as Jordan. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and like, what are the you know what's the deal? Like, it's, I'm from Canada. Does that matter? Not at all. No, yeah, from Germany, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we allow Germans, but I don't know about Canadians. Sorry. <laughs> I, I think our other Canadian friend Josh was on earlier. I think he dropped, but no, we. <clears throat> this is an online homebrew club. It's for it's for anyone who wants to join yeah. around the world. Um, we. We're fine being your side club if you have an in-person club. We're fine being your your main club if you want to hang out with us and throw ideas our way and and chat with us. We're we're totally fine either way. Um, 
a lot most of the leadership or all of the leadership is based uh stateside so shipping of merch and stuff like that is unfortunately kind of tough to international um members but we're we're we try to work with you and do whatever we can to support you um if, if this is something you want to you want to participate in we're we're happy to just uh to hear you out and hear your ideas or or get you as involved as you want as as Marshall would say wherever you listen to podcasts all of our prior meetings are recorded and available so if that's spotify or google podcasts which is going away next year or apple podcasts which is staying around um all previous monthly meetings for our team have been recorded and available there. Oh, wow. Do you want to maybe mention some of the cool stuff that you do, like your Average Brew series or stuff like that? You can go to our website. Yeah, that's awesome. Facebook group. Yeah. At, and, by, and by the way, if you're before we kind of forget Jesse, uh, even though we've got uh, you know a couple thousand people on Facebook, Discord is where we tend to be the most chatty uh, and talk about yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. And and yeah, I'll let Haven or whoever do the the perks uh, pitch though. Just want to make sure you join that. Yeah, the the Discord's probably the best place to interact with us on a daily basis. Uh, outside of like beer and brewing content, I mean, we talk about food competitions. Uh, that's a big part of what we do over in the the Discord. Uh, Will does a weekly class on beard care, which is super cool. Um, so a lot, a lot of cool stuff over there. Uh, and I, I, do, I do a weekly yeah. class on hair care, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Super killer stuff from Alex. Um, no, it, it's just a great community to, to just chat and BS and throw out your, your random brewing ideas or just, I mean, anything you want to really talk about in discord. Other than that, the average brew series, like Jordan mentioned, um, just a, 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 a cool recipe collaboration series that we can get together and vote on ingredients, um, brew a specific style based off of a, a very rough guideline to, if you haven't heard the, the brewlosophy podcast episodes on this, this activity, we send our beers into them to, to review on that. Um, yeah, we do, we do a lot of, a lot of cool different things just to, we have to work a little bit more creatively than your in-person homebrew club for sure. Yeah, this is amazing. I mean, I live out on the west coast of British Columbia, and I'm on a small island. There's like 10,000 of us here. There's no brew club. I tried. No one cares. So this is pretty cool. Is it yeah. Victoria? Uh, close to Victoria. It's Salt Spring Island. Have you heard of Salt Spring Island? Oh, man. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Uh, a friend of mine is working. He's German. He's a German home brewer and now brewmaster, and he's been moving with his girlfriend, who is also a brewmaster, to Victoria to work for Whistleboy Brewing. Whistleboy, yeah, they're great. Yeah, excellent yeah. brewery. Yeah. Awesome, that's awesome. Right on. Cool, thanks, guys. Thanks for the info. Appreciate it. Yeah, if you ever want to get really crazy and become one of the paid members and all that of the, the brew club, happy to chat about that sometime. Yeah, I'm a I'm a patron, but do you guys what you guys do? Uh, We're totally separate for... in that way. Oh yeah, I would be interested in that. Yeah, thanks. Awesome. I'll, I'll check that out. We we cool. have Alex. I think our most of our paid members are in the U.S., but we have one in New Zealand that we've sent <laughs> stuff to. Uh, so Gar- Gary's <laughs> crazy. Uh, he he doesn't give a shit what happens or what we do. Uh, he's always participating and um, 
Yeah, we'll we'll make it work uh, with shipping. If we're going to ship some merch or something like that, we'll figure it out with you. So I I've got a line of communication with our guy in New Zealand that will uh we'll do what we can to to get you involved as possible. So it's a uh, yeah, it's a great little community. Yeah, great. Thanks for thanks for breaking it down. I appreciate it. Sorry to jump in there, guys. No, you're all good. Yeah. Oh, shoot, I th- unless anyone else has something else, I think that's probably about it, huh? Yeah, thanks for being so generous with your time, Gordon. I really appreciate you, brother. Thanks for coming on, chatting beer. Um, I, I, I love what you do with Realosophy, um, and so uh, to have you come on and, and uh, answer our questions has been fantastic. Yeah, um, thanks for having me out. It was fun. Thanks, Trent. Yeah, thanks, oh, yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Cheers. Have a good night, everyone. Cheers. Thanks, guys. See ya.